Thanks for listening to one of our messages at Crossroads Bible Church. We gather on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. in person and online. To find out more about our church or to connect to any of our ministries, visit our website at crossroadsbible.org. We hope you enjoy the message and pray it encourages you as you seek to follow Jesus. Well, hey again. If you were with us last week, we started a new sermon series called What the Bible Says About. A few months ago, we asked you to send in questions and you listened, good little Christian people, everybody. Uh, We got about 175 questions in, so sometime mid-2025, we'll be done with this series. Uh, No, we picked five and grouped them together, and last week was the problem of evil. We fixed it in 40 minutes, everybody. Uh, this week, we're going to talk about people that walk away from the faith. Next week's mental health. We're going to get into sexuality a little bit in a week that I'm looking forward to and scared of at the very same time. And uh, we'll end it talking about politics and culture and our role in both those things. And I'm going to bring in other people to speak about that because I just want to go hide in the corner, right? No, um, I'm excited. And we do these things because we firmly believe that our followingness of Jesus is not just for one day, but for today. Our faith takes action right here and right now. It changes how we live. These questions help us to see that. So last week, we dealt with the problem of evil, and all the questions we don't get to is going to be season three of our podcast. And what we're going to do today is try and answer about 10 of the questions, and we'll put them on on the screen, about 10 in the next 35-ish minutes. So... If you've been at CBC for a while, what we try to do on a Sunday morning is have a specific passage that has a specific point, and after about 35 minutes of Nick's teaching, or 75 minutes if I'm on my game that morning, we leave this place, and you have a tight eight to ten words that are going to change your lives, you know? You don't say that to me, I just see it in your eyes, okay? Um, Today's going to be a little different. Today, we're going to deal with this one theme of questions about what we do with people that fall away from the faith. And in the middle of that, I'm going to pause a couple times and say, here's some other questions we got around this idea. And so it might be a little bit more segmented than we're used to, than I'm used to, but hopefully it makes sense at the end. (laughs) Hopefully people feel valued and heard because that's what this series is about. It does two things for us. It doesn't just allow us to see our faith in action every day. It helps us realize that the church has got to reclaim the ability to have discussions. We've got to reclaim the space where we can come together and say, I don't know the answer, but let's talk about it. The questions we're dealing with aren't new to us. These questions have been asked for literally thousands of years, and we're lending our voice to the conversation. That's important because it keeps us humble, one, and it allows us to be reminded that I need other people to fully see the goodness of God. I need it. And so today, we don't have all the answers, we have questions, we have suggestions, and we're going to join the conversation. But before we do that, uh, each week at CBC, before we dive right in, we have this mantra we like to say, that the move of the Spirit is inward to conviction, not outward to critique. We live in a critical world. Sometimes we feel like it's our job to judge everything and tell people where they're wrong and where we're right. The church is different. This space, God is moving and he is acting and the Holy Spirit will show you more of the goodness of God today if you'll allow it. And so we're just gonna start by praying against a culture of criticism and for a culture that might be convicted by the work of God in our life, that we might see more of his goodness and beauty. So I'll pray, I'll ask you to pray if you're comfortable, I'll ask you to pray for me, uh, that we don't spend an hour and a half in here with these 10 questions and for some clarity. Let's go. God, I'm thankful that we can be here. 
that we can be reminded what's worthy of our worship, that we can be reminded of your goodness, that we can be reminded in a critical culture where it seems like people are running from God, that people are still running towards God as you run towards us. So be with us this morning. Help us to see your goodness today. I'd ask if you're comfortable, just take a, a few seconds and say a quiet prayer and, and, and ask the Holy Spirit to engage with your spirit this morning to see you more of God. And ask you to pray for me that I might show us more of God in a tough situation, that I might show us how to be compassionate to those who don't think God is good anymore. Pray these things in the name of Jesus. And all God's people said, amen. So about a month ago, I got to the office one morning and uh, before I got to my office, two or three people on staff looked at me, did the side head tilt thing, like something bad happened and asked, are you okay, you know? And I said, sure. And they said, no, but really, are you okay? And I was like, something is bad, is happening. I'm getting back in my car and driving away, right? You know what happened that day? We got our monthly Christianity Today magazine delivered. Do you know the headline of that magazine was? It was about how pastors are walking away from their jobs. The title was Emptied Out. About 39% of pastors in the last couple of years have thought about or have left their roles at churches. Now, let me be upfront. I love this church. I'm not thinking about leaving. This isn't a foray into the next guy, okay? <laughs> I just found it fascinating how all of a sudden in the last couple of years, for a lot of reasons, and it's not just this industry, it's a lot of industries, people are thinking about leaving things that they love. But, but really, it's not just a phenomenon within the pastorate circles that I run in. I remember one time in college, our, uh, our dean got up there and he spoke, and he's also a pastor, and he said, on the left side of my Bible, I have a running list of people that I went to seminary with that no longer are in ministry or don't believe in God anymore. It's 20 years ago. And I thought, wow. I thought we went here to never not believe in God anymore, Moody Bible Institute, Right? And, and what we've seen over the last 20 years is this precipitous decline in belief in God in America. I can give you numbers all day long. In 2020, uh, Gallup did a poll, and they said for the first time in their eight-decade run of this poll, have we seen less people go to church in America than more, 47%. It's down 20 points from the turn of the century. U.S. church membership was 73% when Gallup first me measured in 1937. And it was 70% for the next six decades. We've seen a precipitous decline in the last 20 years. Church membership is down across the board, interdenominationally, outside of denominations. But over that time period, what's really interesting, not only is church membership and people that follow God down, but of the same percentage of time since 2007, the number of people who no longer identify with a particular religion increased 16% to almost 30% of our population. What that means is that we're in this space where less and less people believe in God, or say they do, or less and less people believe church is good anymore. And look, I could, like I said, throw numbers at you all day long, but all I have to do is simply sit there, look in the eye, and ask, who do you know that doesn't believe in Jesus anymore? Who do you know that has left the faith? Who do you know that doesn't do church anymore because they don't know? Man, this question hits all of us. It hits me as a pastor with my pastor friends. This question's hard. I think we need to know a couple things before we dive in. One is, this question is not new. 
There are examples in the New Testament and the Old, but in the New Testament of, of the early believers saying, I don't know if I believe this anymore. I'll throw one on the screen. James 5, 19, my brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from the death and cover over a multitude of sins. Uh, 2 Peter 2 says, if they've escaped the corruption of the world by knowing our Lord Jesus, uh, Savior Jesus Christ, and are again entangled in it and are overcome, they're worse off at the end than they were at the beginning. That just simply says out loud that church baggage is a thing, even back then, you know? This is not a new conversation. Let's not presume that this has never happened before because what that does is it allows us to see that God is still good even though it's hard to see it right here, right now with people that are walking uh, today. But our question is simply in this space, what do we do? What does the Bible say about family members who have left or lost their faith? That's a tough one. And I wish, just up front, I wish I could give you five things that you can do to make them believe in the goodness of God again. I wish, I can't today, I I can't. What I want to do is ask questions about what we're talking about. I want to ask questions if we see this in scripture. I want to ask questions about our response. And in the middle, we're peppering some other questions that came in. So the first thing I want to do is talk about the nature and the role of belief in Jesus. And we touched on this last week just a little bit. Religions exist. Worldviews exist to help us make sense of the world. And primarily, they try to answer three questions that we've always tried to answer since the dawn of time. You look up at the sky, and you see all the universes out there, and you think to yourself, there has got to be purpose in this. This could not be an accident. I need meaning, is one of them. The second one is we look around, and we see things that happen to people that shouldn't happen. We see injustice, and we need an explanation for injustice. All religious systems, even atheism, has an answer for that. And finally, we try to answer questions about eternality. Is there one? Is there not one? And so Christianity does that and answers questions about the purpose of man and the problem of evil and what happens after this time and space on this earth exists. And so when we talk about people that have walked away, what we're talking about are people that are trying to find different answers to the same questions we're all asking together. There's a large group of people right now who are moving away from Christianity because they're not satisfied with the answers. And I wonder if it's because they don't see the beauty and goodness of God anymore. One of my favorite quotes by, um, by C.S. Lewis is when he talks about, he, he wandered away from the faith for a while and didn't believe in God, and then he finally came back, and here's a reasoning he gave. He says, you can't go away explaining away forever. You that have explained explanation away, you cannot go on seeing through things forever. The whole point of seeing through something is to see something through it. I love this next line. A wholly transparent world is an invisible world. To see through all things is the same as not to see. So what we do is show people why seeing God through the lens of those three questions makes the most sense, is the most good, is the most beautiful. And so what I want to do up top is simply stop down and say, if people are leaving in mass quantities, maybe we have an issue with how we talk about the goodness of God. If you're in the dating world and you get broken up with time and time and time again, maybe it's time to look in the mirror and see if you put on a couple dozen pounds, Okay. <laughs> just, just being honest with you. <laughs> like, it's something we need to do. Let's not be like, these people are crazy. They just keep leaving. We got to look in the mirror and say, what are we doing that doesn't accurately show the goodness of God anymore? And sure, it's part of their problem, but yeah, it's a lot our problem as well. And this conversation is a huge one, but I just want to give you one of my favorite points at it. 
I think for a long time, how we've talked about the goodness of God and the gospel of God has been interpreted through the lens of morality and, 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 and ethics instead of the lens of redemption and Christ. What I mean by that, there's a word for it, moral therapeutic deism that we raised our kids in, and by our kids, I mean me in the mid-90s, is that we made God a way to be a better person, to act better, to stay out of jail, to go to college, and to have a healthy and wealthy and successful life. And so as churches, what we try to do as parents, and it had good intentions, is we try to say that you need to act a certain way so that you can represent Jesus well. But the problem is that I think when we looked at the gospel, it became a type of sin management that just got you in or out of heaven instead of seeing the goodness of God in our everyday. I love what N.T. Wright says about it. He says, most modern Christians miss what the sinfulness of human uh, beings and their redemption means within the larger creational uh, covenantal purposes. If we get the backstory wrong, we get the good news wrong. And so what that means is we got to ask the question, when we talk about the gospel of God solving the problems in the world and giving meaning, what story are we telling? What story are we telling? And for a long time, I think that story, lately at least, has been, if you're a better person, God will get you into heaven. If you say the right thing, then you don't have to suffer one day in hell um, for the rest of eternity. And that's a part of the gospel. That's not the full gospel. I think the gospel is so much more than just right or wrong choices. I think it's about a God redeeming and restoring all creation. Uh, I love what Dallas Willard said. He said, the gospels of sin management presume a Christ with no serious work other than redeeming humankind. And they foster vampire Christians who only want a little blood for their sins, but nothing more to do with Jesus until heaven. When we talk about the gospel, so often we start in Genesis 3 with the problem of sin instead of where the Bible starts, which is Genesis 1 and the difference the Genesis 3 gospel tells you once you aren't, the Genesis 1 gospel reminds you what you are. Big difference. And so sure, there's a sin problem in our world, and there's an evil problem in our world, and it's our fault that's last week, but we start with the beginning that God is for you, and he loves you, and he came to redeem all of us together. That's the gospel that's good. It involves sin, it involves atonement, and the death of Christ, and how all these things play out, but ultimately the gospel starts with a God who passionately pursues broken people so that they might not be broken anymore. I wonder the story we tell when we talk to people about Jesus. So Jesus said things like, hey man, I am that way that fixes these things. John 14, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. If you want to see God or get to God, you got to go through me. This is the claim of the Christian. This is beautiful passage that says God is for all people to redeem and restore all people. And for far too long, I think the church has made the threshold of belonging behavior, <laughs> meaning if you act a certain way, then you can be happy at this church instead of, hey, the threshold for belonging is that God made you, that you believe that Jesus is the way out. Let's work on behaving together because we're all a work in progress. Me too, you know? You don't have to have X amount of sins on your platter to get into this place or less the next day to come back the next week. <laughs> And so I think it's really important to remind ourselves of the message of the gospel. This beautiful passage in 2 Peter 3, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promises. Some understand slowness. Instead, he's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. It simply says that God doesn't want people to be lost. We would say around here, the exclusivity of Jesus is fully inclusive. So when we talk about people that have walked away from faith, we acknowledge the point of faith in the first place. To see the world, the purpose and the brokenness and the ultimate hopefulness through the lens of God. 
through the lens of a God who came near and restored and redeemed. Like we said last week, there are no good Christians, there are redeemed people. And so we begin with the idea that salvation is something that's attained through Jesus Christ and only Jesus Christ. So if you're walking away from a faith that expects behavior out of you or expects a certain kind of X, Y, and Z, we, we peel back and we say it begins and ends with Jesus and we work on everything in between together. A couple one-off questions that we got about this idea was, so he said, can a person accept Jesus after death? Um, like I said, I don't presume to know all the answers, but the Bible does not seem to indicate that's a possibility. We have a time and place to make our bed for eternity. Um, and after that, kind of the fate is sealed. So most people I know would say no, like this here and now, and this is the picture the Bible paints as well with a couple parables, like what we decide here carries on into eternity. I love what Tim Keller says about uh, heaven and hell and, and what we decide now. He said, hey, if you choose God, you get God for eternity. If you don't, then you don't get God for eternity. So the choices we make now matter. That's why Jesus says to his disciples, like the very last thing is, hey, go and redeem and restore people. Make disciples of me. It's very important because time is limited. We've lost that sense of urgency in how we talk about our faith. You know the only thing dropping more than people that follow Jesus in our country? Evangelism, right? Some of you are like, what does that word mean? Uh, it's something we did in the 90s on streets. So <laughs> with tracks, uh, yeah, people don't share their faith anymore. Another sermon, another time, but they don't. And, and I think we've lost the urgency of what God has called us to do because he's for all people, that all people might find faith and be saved. Somebody said, hey, uh, can someone who has never heard the gospel, what happens to someone who has never heard the gospel? And this kind of pairs with the next question. I'll combine them together. What about the age of accountability? I think both of these get to the heart of what about the people that we don't think should be held responsible because they're either too young or because they've never heard of Jesus before because they live in somewhere? Those are good questions. T to that, I would say uh, one is, you know, Romans 1 is your classic answer to that question. It says that God is made known through all the stuff he built and how he built it, and so everybody knows deep down that there is a God to be worshipped. And then the age of accountability question is about what if you're too young? I'd say that's not a biblical principle. It was one in the Jewish context of when you come from boyhood to manhood or, womanhood or, or girlhood to womanhood, but it's not one we see in scripture about salvation. And that brings up some tougher questions about what happens if a kid dies. And, and look, to that, I don't presume to know the answer, but I love, we'll go back to Tim Keller. I love how Keller answered this about 15 years ago. He's doing a forum at NYU and they asked him this question. A guy named Martin Brashears was interviewing him and asked him this question. And he said, I don't know. Uh, he said, but here's what I do know. Because this is what we do, hopefully. In, in light of not knowing, we, we rely on what we do know to be true from a God that we know and can experience. He says, I, I don't know the answer to that question, but I do know that I won't be underwhelmed or disappointed by the compassion and grace of God. Like, I do know that. I'm not going to get to heaven with him and be like, man, you should have done it differently. How dare you? Because God has always been. It's how he defines himself in Genesis 34. Great passage, and Moses is a little confused as what to do. The Israelites like saw God and sinned against God, and he's on this mountain, and Moses hears God, and God says, hey, Moses, this is who I am. He says his name twice in the Hebrew, the only time in the scripture, and he says, listen to me, this is who I am. He says, I'm slow to anger, I'm compassionate, abounding in love and faithfulness. That's who our God is. So while I don't know the answer to some of those questions, I choose to believe that his compassion is far, far greater than I can fathom in those moments. And so what will God do? I think God's a compassionate God. And that's as far as I can probably answer the question and as far as the scriptures can answer the question. Now, let's keep going. 
So in this, we know about the idea of faith and maybe we need to change a bit, tweak a bit how we talk about the goodness of God and what Jesus is for and the lens through which we look at the world and answer the questions of purpose and evil and eternality in light of the gospel, like the Genesis 1 gospel, not necessarily the moral therapeutic deist gospel of Genesis 3, but the question still remains, what do we do about those who have lost their faith? And I think I'm going to pause there. Because we got to acknowledge that, that we see things differently than sometimes they saw it in the Old Testament. There's a really good book called Misreading Scripture Through Middle Eastern Eyes. And it talks about some concepts that we don't see that they would have seen. That the process of anything in the Old and New Testament was way, way slower. Do you know what we don't do a good job with anymore? Slowness. You know? We want things faster and faster and faster. I've said this before. One of my guilty pleasures is Hot Pockets. I love them. They're amazing. I've liked them since high school. And there are two kinds of people in the world. The kind of animals that will throw the Hot Pocket in that crisping sleeve from space for two and a half minutes. Or the kind of people like me who will preheat the oven and put it in the oven for 28 and a half minutes. Right? And I tell the staff that and they look at me like, you're crazy. What's wrong with you? And I say, I like goodness. Don't you? Clearly not. And we move on. But... No, I think that we don't do, and we're, we're clearly not moving in a trajectory towards sitting and waiting in space. We move towards instant instead of incremental. I think it's one of the ways that we don't see true forms of discipleship because we want it to happen now. And you know what game God plays? The long game. <laughs> I mean, we read the Old Testament and we flip a page and we're like, this happened and this happened. And we miss out like that 87 years happened in between those two pages. We're like, look at this. In an instant culture, we miss out on the slow and methodical, incremental nature of discipleship. That we sit in it. That God changes us slowly, because slow change is sustainable change. And so when we ask about this idea of, what about people that have lost their faith? I would press pause for just a sec. And I'd remind people that God's not done yet. And discipleship takes time. We see it in Peter. So Peter is one of the most outspoken of all the disciples and there's this high water statement that he makes uh, when Jesus asks him like, hey, what happened to those people who don't know who you quite are yet? And in Matthew 7, uh, I'm sorry, in Matthew, uh, uh, oh, I'm, I'm lost in my outline here, but oh, yeah, here it is. In Matthew 16, um, they say, people want to know who you are, Jesus, and Jesus says, who do you think I am? And then this is the answer that we all know that he gives Peter says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered, you are blessed. Like, it's a high watermark for Peter. It's taken two years to get to this moment, by the way. He didn't see Jesus in a boat and be like, that's God. I got it. I see him from here, you know. Done. Let's go. Let's worship. Let's do. Jesus first saw him and said, I'm going to make you a fisher of men. It took three years before he finally got to that point. Uh, about seven months later, after he says this answer, do you know what Peter does? He says, you are Christ, the son of the living God. And then a slave girl next to a fire a few, year, a few months later says, do you know Jesus? And he says, I don't know who you're talking about. We have to, we have to acknowledge that the journey of Jesus is less linear than we think it is sometimes in a science fair culture that just believes if you do A, B, C, D always happens. If I wake up every morning and read my Bible, if I wake up every morning and pray, if I wake up every morning and journal, then I will love God more tomorrow than I do today. And I want to say that's true, but sometimes it's not. <laughs> sometimes we go in ebbs and flows in any relationship, God included. And so when we talk about this idea of losing our faith, we have to remember that following Jesus is less linear and more of a lifetime journey. And so when people have come to me and said, hey, 
Charlie, my kid is walking away from the faith, or my brother, or my husband, or fill in the blank, I'd simply stop and say, okay, it's really hard right now, but let's begin with an understanding that God's not done yet and trust him in that. Because we're afraid of what's gonna happen tomorrow, but, but God sees like all the tomorrows, <laughs> and we trust him in it. And that's a hard place to be in an instant culture. We wanna get it done and get it done now because we care and care so much. So in answering this question, what does the Bible say about people that have lost their faith? I think, first of all, the Bible talks about the incremental nature of those people who follow Jesus. And we trust in that. And it's been that way for me and for you, and that's how relationships find and flourish. Somebody else asked the same question like this. What does the Bible say about someone who followed Jesus and then turns away? Kind of the same thing, but a little different. So the, the Bible has two different examples of this. Jesus talks to him in parables. It's the parable of the seed and the parable of the son, Yeah. So the parable of the seed, you might know it. It's in Matthew 13. It's very long. Uh, I'll I'll read just a section of it from verse 20. The seed falling on rocky ground, and and the seed is the good news of Jesus, like the kingdom of God, he says. He's spreading the kingdom of God to all these people, and it's hitting different types of people. And the first type is people that have no space and time for it. It bounces off rocks and goes away, and he continues through the kinds of ways that people respond to the kingdom of God, the gospel of Jesus. It says the seed falling on the rocky ground, refers to someone who hears the word and at once receives it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. So one response that we seemingly see in the text is that some people will see God for a little while as good and then decide that maybe he never really was in the first place. I remember growing up, (laughs) I'm going to, I don't know how many times you guys got saved, but I got saved like a half dozen, okay? And you might ask, Charlie, how is that possible? Because I saw the power team a lot as a kid, all right? Uh, and if you didn't grow up like in a Jesus baptist culture, because this is the South, everybody, what that meant was, again, crying up salvation to me was go to heaven one day and stop sinning. So I'd get saved and then I'd keep sinning. And so I thought, and I was told, well, maybe it just didn't stick, you know? <laughs> Maybe you didn't really believe it. Dig down and really find the roots of your belief and then walk down that aisle again because you told me your eyes were closed. They were clearly open and you were looking at my hand. That is baggage I'm unpacking, okay? No, but I, I think that some of what we have to acknowledge when we talk about this question is that some people, some people will hear the word of God, the kingdom of God, the hope of Jesus, and they'll think it's a good idea and then they won't. But, but I think we have to be careful with this one. One, it's not our job to judge. And, and two, I think, again, we keep in mind that God plays the long game. <laughs> so I, I don't think what we can do is, is say, well, you still listen to secular music. You need to get resaved because this clearly didn't stick. I think our job is to say, do you believe and see the goodness of God? Do you trust it? And let's live it out together, day in and day out. But, but the first one talks about the seed. The second one talks about the son, the story of the prodigal. It says, a man had two sons in Luke 15. The younger said to his father, give me the share of the estate that belongs to me. He divided the assets between them. And a few days later, the younger son gathered together all that he had left on a, and left on a journey for a distant country. Uh, I mean, if you have never heard this taught before, basically the son goes up to his father in a very corporate culture where the father was the head of the household or respect and shame are big players in the currency of their culture. And he says to the father, I want you to be dead. Give me my stuff and I'm gonna pretend like you're dead and I'm gonna leave horrible thing for a son to do. The father had every right there just to cut the son out of everything, and he didn't. Instead, he let the kid walk away. But you probably know how this ends at the same time. At the end of that, it says that the son came back, 
And he says in verse 23, bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate because the son of mine was dead and he's alive again. He was lost and now he's found. So there's two responses to the question we've asked today in the scriptures. One is some people clearly see the goodness of God for a time and then don't believe it. And and others see the goodness of God and forget it. But look, here's the deal. Is in the middle of this, our response is the same. You know that? Our response is to show people how good God is, whether they've forgotten it for a time or forgotten it for good. Our response is to show them the beauty of God and the redemption that we see in Jesus. Another question we got along these lines. What does the Bible say about someone who followed Jesus and turns away? Uh, I've read passages that talk about how Jesus pursues this person since she or he or they is precious to them. I've also read about how blasphemy against the spirit is an unforgivable sin. Okay, so a couple things there. One, God always pursues. God tells us to always pursue. There's parable, read Luke 15, parable after parable after parable of God pursuing. So if you feel like that God isn't pursuing someone that's not right theology, God pursues, end of story. From the beginning of creation, man fell, God pursued. All throughout the Old Testament, Israel wanted to run away, God pursued. In the New Testament, people didn't love Jesus, God pursued. They killed Jesus, God pursued. The church was trying to not be the church, God pursued. The story of the scriptures about God pursuing a broken people to ultimately redeem and restore, God pursues, end of story. And so we have to remember that. So if you're thinking in your head, like, does God even love my kid or want my kid to be a believer or love my kid enough to save? Yes is the answer. The next part of that question about sin of blaspheming the Holy Spirit, really I think it's down to, is there anything they can do to not make God forgive them? That uh, question specifically comes from a story in Matthew 12, when Jesus did some miraculous things and some of the Pharisees attributed the miraculous things Jesus did to demonic forces. And so most theologians and commentators would agree that that's a specific time and a specific place kind of action because the incarnation was a specific thing that hasn't happened again. And so that sin there is not possible now. And moreover, after that, in the New Testament, we never see, we never see a specific kind of sin that is too big for God to forgive, ever. And, and so when we talk about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit as the unforgivable sin, we don't see evidence of that anywhere else in Scripture. There's an unforgivable sin. Again, I'd say that people that choose God get God, and people that don't choose God don't get God. But if some of our attention is, can my kid do, can my friend do, can my family do too much so that God doesn't pursue them? No, is the answer to that. So I'd also say too, here's another way that we got this question. If someone accepted Christ, they baptized and showed fruit of their faith for 10 years and then began doubting the existence of Jesus to the point where they now say they don't believe, are they still saved? Another person said, what biblical truth can we cling to for a return to Jesus? How does a personal decision for Christ endure while they're running away from God? I read all these just to know that we've read all these and we show value as we read questions together. I'd simply respond with the doctrine of eternal security. You know what that means? That means that once you're God, you're nobody else's ever. Ephesians 1 talks about it like this. Ephesians 1 says, in him also... When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of your inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. It says that when you decide to follow Jesus, you are sealed for the day of redemption. Nothing can break that. Nothing can break that. Otherwise, God's a liar, and God doesn't lie. Uh, Another verse that I love when Jesus talks about it is when he talks in John 10, he says, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will be snatched out of my hand. 
You know why? Because salvation is God's work for us, not our work for God. And if we could lose our faith because we did something that was too egregious for God to actually forgive us, then what sin is it? Then God says, I'm done. Is it number eight? Is it number 88? Is it number eight, 88 times? You know? What sin is it where God says, I can no longer call this kid mine? The scripture paints a picture. It's Romans 8. It says, nothing, 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 nothing separates us from the love of God. Nothing does. This beautiful depiction that once we decide to follow Jesus and we enter into his kingdom and into his family, nothing can break us out of his family. I love to go to the example of just having a kid. If you have kids, is there anything your kid can do to no longer be your kid? No. Will they make your life harder? Every single day. (laughs) But are they ever not your kid? No. Would you ever want them not to be no matter what they did? No. So we're in, we get to this tension of somebody I know and love said they were a Christian, they lived out the message of Jesus, and it doesn't seem like they want that anymore. I'd simply go back to the way I read my scripture is that God says that they can't go anywhere. And I trust it. I trust it. And so we have two responses. We talk about those that don't see God's goodness and those that forgot God's goodness. And I don't think it's our uh, job to decide which one it is. It's our job to show the goodness of God. I lean more towards the second one. They've forgotten and they're still gods because I have more grace than you. I'm a pastor. That's what I'm supposed to do, everybody. It's not a competition, but I'll win. I think. <laughs> no, I, I really do. I trust God in that, knowing full well that his compassion will not underwhelm me. I know that. His compassion won't un- underwhelm me, and I know that God is not done yet. I trust those two things. I trust those things. Because I have two kids, and one day, if one of them walks away from the faith, I, I will need to trust those things. I will need to trust those. So then this next question, is there anything else we can do? Kind of moves us into more of a commentary time about what we can do as a church. And let me start out with giving you three um, kind of resources to keep the conversation going. Like I said, we're not going to solve the world's problems. And it's now turning into a 57-minute sermon. We're not going to solve the world's problems. But here's three resources that kind of talk about this conversation that I love. If you're uh, hanging out with us online, we're going to post them online in the feed so you can write them down or just go to the online feed and boost our views, everybody, <laughs> and, and get them there. Uh, one is a book by a guy named Mark Sayers, who I really appreciate. He wrote it in 2016. It's called Disappearing Church. And then last year, he wrote a book called Reappearing Church. Very, very good. He is one of my favorite people to parse out the cultural implications of what's happening in our church, meaning that he looks at the world and says, man, this is what I think is going on. And, and I like his take and perception on that. Uh, another one is a podcast he does with a guy named John Mark Comer. It's called uh, This Cultural Moment. It is outstanding. They really get together, and it's, it's offline now, but it, it went for about three years. They got together and said, this is what we see happening in the culture as followers of Jesus, and this is where I think it's going, and, and, and this is maybe where we need to adapt, shift, or change as the church to show people more of God's goodness. I, I love that podcast. Uh, and then the last one is something I found recently. There's a Canadian pastor named Kerry Newhoff who uh, now has literally one of the most listened to podcasts in the world on leadership. It's pretty good. And, and this week, uh, there's an episode of his podcast, number 512, again, we'll link to it, with a pastor named Brian Zahand, and it says, it's understanding deconstruction, Nietzsche, nihilism, and the alternative to Christianity and the oddity of post-Christian America. Now, most of you are thinking, that's terrible. I'm never going to listen to that. It's worth it. Do it, right? It's really good. 
And so the question we have is, is there anything else we can do? And let me give you three-ish things that I think we can do as a church. The first thing is what we're doing now. I think we need to create spaces where doubt, disagreement, and love exists all at the same time. We've done a bad job of this as a church. We live in a culture where if you disagree, you disassociate by nature. If you don't agree with me on this, then we can't be friends, we can't be family, we can't be married, we can't fill in the blank. The church used to be the center of society where you went to and you talked about things. The, the Jewish faith is known for saying something from the scriptures and then having deep conversations about what it possibly could mean with people that disagreed. If you read how some of the, the rabbis in the first century interpreted scriptures, they had different followings because there's completely different ways to look at some of the Old Testament writings. We've got to find and be a place again where doubt, disagreement, and love exist all at the same time. And for the church, point 1A, I, I think that what's paramount or fundamental to having that happen is we need to learn when to be firm and when to flex in our theology. We don't. Culturally, we don't know the difference between this anymore. Every little issue is a big issue, and there's no differentiation in between. And that's not a way to live. You will break. You guys ever see the movie Ford vs. Ferrari? It's an awesome movie. I know nothing about racing. Nothing. I thought racing was push on the gas as hard as you can, as fast as you can, for as long as you can. That's racing to me. I watched that movie, and it, it, it showed me there's a much deeper conversation about racing, that if you do what I just said, you know what you're going to do? Break your car. Don't do that. There's a time to go really fast. And there's a time to let off. It's this interplay between being firm and flexing, and we have got to know the difference as the church today. We've got to know the difference between the importance of a seven-day creation and the atonement of Jesus, and I don't know if we do. We've got to have a place where people can come in here and say, I don't believe this. We say, okay, tell me why. How, when, where? Let's talk about it together. We've got to know when to be firm and when to flex. And for me, I'm firm around like probably the first three creeds. Maybe the Apostles' Creed is a really good place to be firm if you want to go read that. But the nature and work of God in our world and the nature and work of Jesus. And most other things are pretty flexible. It doesn't mean we don't care. It does not mean we don't care. It doesn't mean truth is unimportant. It simply means we have the best things be the best things. That's why we say often at CBC, um, in essentials, unity, and non-essentials, liberty, in all things, charity. I'd say two, is we have to learn as a church in, in a culture with rising doubts to lean in and listen more than we stand up and shout. It used to be that you just tell people how it is and move on. Because I said so, said our parents. Now we live in a place where more explanation is needed because we're asking harder, deeper, way more nuanced questions. We've got to recognize that. So we lean in and listen more than we stand up and shout. It shows value to people. As a church, we can't just say no and roughshod over people with Bible verses and walk away. I love the Bible. It's our middle name at this church. But sometimes we're seen to sit and listen even when we disagree. One of my favorite stories about this is a, a professor and a writer named Dallas Willard. And he was in class one day and the class was about to end. And the student raised his hands. And this is one thing you learn in any kind of class, but seminary is you have these kids who have been studying theology for 10 minutes and they think they know everything. Uh, I was one of those. Um, and shockingly, uh, and so this kid said something incorrect and insulting to Dallas Willard, like to this man's face. And Dallas Willard just looked at the class and said, now's a good place to end for today. Let's go home. So another student went up to Dallas Willard and said, man, why didn't you destroy that kid? And he said, because I'm practicing the discipline of not having the last word. I just loved that. You know what I think we need to do as a church? Practice the discipline of not having the last word more often. I think it's healthy. 
I think it invites questions and fosters conversations. I think it's what we need. Lastly, I'd say, um, we need to help people doubt forward. Let me define that for you. I think doubting forward is causing people to doubt with an assumption that God is still good and doubting around people who believe God is still good. So I, I am a negative interpreter. It's one of my qualities that people aspire towards. Um, it makes marriage really fun. So I remember the first time I made my wife breakfast was eggs. We'd been married for a couple weeks and I made her eggs the way you should make them, a little runny, French style, you know how this is. And she looked at them, she says, ew. And I don't know if she said that exactly, by the way, but she said, yeah, I'm not gonna eat these. And I was like, I'm sorry? Because in my mind, there's a right way to cook eggs and there's a wrong way to cook eggs. Again, I am a joy to be married to. And, and she said, I need them more done than this. And I said, no. <laughs> what I heard in that moment after I cooked my wife a meal for one of the first times was, I think you're a bad cook and this marriage was a terrible idea, <laughs> you know? I'm a negative interpreter. <laughs> I think too often what we do is we say, if you have doubts and you have questions about God or maybe you disagree with us, go out there and figure it out and then come back when you got it all shored up. Thank you very much. I think we have to ask the question, I know you're doubting God, but let's start with the goodness of God that we've seen, that you've seen. Let's start with the love of God that you've felt from the people of God and doubt forward, have those doubts. But let's talk about it in the context of the character of God we know. And then secondarily, I'd say, and let's talk about it with the people of God who know God. It doesn't do us a lot of good if you doubt God with people that don't believe in God. You know where that's gonna land you? <laughs> a couple years ago, four or so, Andy came to me and he said, hey, a friend of mine is having a rough time with his marriage and um, he used to be a church planner, but now I don't think he believes in God anymore. And he's a really good musician and he wants to play in our band on Sundays because he thinks that maybe he needs to be in a church and his family wants to go. And I said, okay. So I met with this guy and we had drinks across the way. And he said, hey man, I think I want to be in this band and I think it might be good for me, but I don't know if I believe in God anymore. And this guy used to be a church planner. And he said, would you have a problem with that? And I said, no. I said, no. I said, don't do a couple things for me. I said, one, don't pretend to pray. We're not going to lie to anybody. Two, you're not going to lead worship. <laughs> that would be just disingenuous. And I said, three, if I see some holy hands, I'll shut it down. And then I remembered this is Crossroads. I won't see holy hands. So <laughs> just being honest with who we are. Let's start with who we are. <laughs> so for a couple years, we had a dude up here that played music with us that didn't know if he believed in God. And look, one thing, we're all still here, <laughs> okay? Uh, but two, he left a little bit ago and his family and and um, under really healthy terms, and he says, my family's healthier because of this place, and I've never seen a place that more clearly and more oftenly pre pre preach the gospel. We have to allow people to doubt for, and sometimes, sometimes that means surrounding people that say they don't believe in God because we know that God believes in them, and God is not done working yet. Uh, someone asked, how do you respond to your adult children who are believers but don't go to church because they don't agree with everything the church preaches? I'll say, how you doing? My name's Charlie. <laughs> I don't believe, no. Um, Look, I think that it's okay to not believe everything we believe the way we believe it. That's just life. If I left things that I didn't believe or share all beliefs and I wouldn't be married, I wouldn't have any friends. Andy and I would never talk anymore. One of my favorite, one of my favorite stories of this is a friend of mine who's a pastor of a bigger church in the area a while back, and they made some changes to um, their, their uh, theology. And it, was, it, was, it was kind of big changes. And this pastor got up there and he said, this was not my idea. And I'm watching online because he asked us to pray for him and I'm thinking, that's a bad start, man. And he's been there for 20 years and he said, this is not my idea. And he said, if it was, we would have done this 20 years ago. It was beautiful. And he said, because the church is more important. 
Again, know what, the thing, know what the hills are to die on and flex a little bit, maybe more often than we think. So what do we do when we don't agree with everything the church preaches? We say, okay, and we ask questions and we live in sometimes disagreement. That's okay. That's okay. You can disagree with me all day long. I will be just fine with it. I think also the last thing we can do for them is, men, never stop, never stop, never stop. This seems obvious, praying for them. Because like we said, prayer changes our heart towards them meaning it makes us compassionate. It is tough to be angry at things you're praying for. And so it gives us a compassion for people that have walked away. And it's easy in the first year. It's much harder in the 10th year. You start to get a little bitter. Pray for him. I love what Pascal says about prayer. He said, God instituted prayer in order to lend his creatures the dignity of causality. What that means is that what God does for us when we pray is he allows us to be reminded that the gospel is done for us and to us, but God's kingdom is built with us. And so we pray for people. We pray for people and know that God uses us in this process to build up the kingdom so that he might be glorified, so that people might see the goodness and beauty of God through his people. C.S. Lewis says it like this. He commands us to do slowly and blunderingly what he could do perfectly in the twinkling of an eye. So I think that those are some of the things we do. And, and let's, let's end here. I, I think as followers of Jesus that love the ones that have ran away, <laughs> I love how the story of the prodigal ends. So if, if you know the story, you know how it ends, they come back. But there's a phrase in there that's my absolute favorite. In the middle of that phrase, it says that his father got up when he saw his kid coming and went to him. And while he was still in the distance... His father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. Do you know what didn't happen in the first century? Old men running. It was not honorable. It was not something old men did. It was beneath them. Young men ran. Old men sat and got things brought to him. This father puts aside all perceived honor and sprints towards his kid. It doesn't even say they met him halfway. <laughs> it doesn't even say the kid was moving very fast. It says the father went and sprinted towards his kid. What do we do in a world that seemingly is running away from God and doesn't see him as good anymore? We be faster than people that are running away. We run faster towards others and they can run away from God. And look, there's a wide range of interpretation of what that means. It might just mean you send a text to somebody this week that says, hey, I love you and so does God, and we leave it there. It might mean you bring him to church. It might mean you bring him to another church because I'm going to offend him. I'm not going to be offended. It might mean a lot of different things. But I think the question for today is, with a person you're thinking about that has run away from Jesus, how can you run towards them today? How? With wisdom and with honor and with compassion and with sensitivity, how can we run faster towards the people that don't see the goodness of God so that they might see it just a little bit today and maybe a little more tomorrow? That's what we do. Knowing full well, that God isn't done yet. It's one of the reasons why I love this church. If you go to the newcomers class, if you've been to the newcomers lunch, we get up there and we kind of all say the same thing. Like, I never thought I'd be here. I never thought I'd be here. I never thought I'd be the pastor of a church. I have a lot of church hurt, a lot of church baggage. Never, ever, ever, ever. I was a long haul trucker for a year just to not be a pastor in Texas. Delyn never thought she'd work at a church again. Kara worked at a church, left, and then came back to work here. Nick has some church baggage. Andy has some church baggage. What I love about this place, what I love about this place, is time and time again I hear stories that God uses us to show people the beauty of God where people thought they forgot. That's my prayer versus the church. That we might do that. We might lean in and listen more than we stand up and shout. That we might cause people to doubt forward. That we might show people that God is really good and that he really loves you in the midst of all the doubt you might have and baggage you might bring. Let me pray for us.
God, I'm thankful. You're not done working? I'm thankful that you're bigger than our doubts. I'm thankful that you give space and opportunity to show others, that you use us to show others that you're still good. God, I pray for people that are running away from you that we know and love. Give us opportunity to show them their love by God. Give us opportunity to be a part of their healing. Give us opportunity to mend some of the brokenness that they might see how much you love them. Just give us space. Holy Spirit, give us wisdom in how to respond in the moments that are tough. And give us an overwhelming, supernatural love and compassion for those people. Because that's how you love them too. And we pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen.